0: We now come to the end of our line-by-line, verse-by-verse study through the books of 1st and 2nd Thessalonians. And like so many other epistles, it starts off with dealing with doctrine or correctional. Not necessarily dealing with doctrine, but correction. And and that's kind of what we find here in these books. You remember that the theme of 1st Thessalonians is the rapture of the church. The theme of 2nd Thessalonians is the second coming of Jesus. And we find that, that they thought that they were in the middle of the tribulation period. And Paul writes to correct them. Once he's done correcting them, he begins to talk to them about how they are supposed to live. And he needs to correct some certain ways in which they are living. Now, let's just talk a little bit about these Thessalonica churches once again. Uh, it is in what is today modern-day northern Greece. Uh, the city today is called Thessaloniki or Salonika. There are 300,000 people there today, approximately, during the days of Paul. There were 200,000 that were there. The city is made up mostly of Gentiles. Same in the days of Paul. It was a Roman city. And so the the people that were there had certain privileges. Uh, There was a large Jewish community in his day. And the, the church that they found in Thessalonica, which they were only there for three weeks and planted it, was made up of both Jews and Gentiles. We assume more Jews than Gentiles, but we don't really know what the break, makeup was. Um, the church was established after Paul visited them for three weeks, which I love. I love that a church was established. I don't know if you know anything about church planning, but church planning is extremely difficult. It's very tough. To be able to go somewhere and have a church established after three weeks is absolutely amazing and would really be a work of God. Um, you can also read in Acts 17 and 18 about Paul's missionary journey, and you can read about this church being founded. It would be good to do that. There are They had misunderstandings about the resurrection, the rapture, and the return of Jesus. And Paul wrote his first letter to them, established the church at 51 or 52. He wrote his first letter just a few months after he had left there. And then almost right on top of that, he wrote a second letter. It's like there were problems there. There were people that were telling them things that weren't right. They were believing wrong things. Um, There seems to have been some people that were in the church that were just troublemakers. They were just going around causing trouble and difficulty for people. And Paul will deal with that a little bit at the end of this book. So in verse 13 after once again talking to them about the second coming of Jesus, that the departure must happen first. We talked about that last week. Whether that is the great falling away, the great apostasy of the last days, which we know will take place even without that passage, or whether that's the departure as in the church being taken away. I don't know that we can really 100% say. We can certainly believe know what we believe, but I don't know that we can know it 100%. But then it says that the Antichrist is going to be revealed. And he talks a lot about What the antichrist does and who he is it's one of the more detailed passages on the antichrist in chapter 2. once he's done with that he now turns to christian conduct in verse 13 he says but we are bound to give thanks to god always for you this is something that paul said in church letters often he said it to the colossians he said it to the corinthians that he thanked god regularly i take it that part of paul's prayer life was just thanking God for the different churches that were established, that they were still strong in the faith, that they, he would get excited when he would hear good reports from these churches. He says, um, "Give me thanks to you always, brethren, beloved of the Lord. He points out to them that they are loved by God. Of course, Jesus said, love one another as I have loved you. And we can remind one another that we are truly loved by God. Because God, from the beginning, he says, chose you for salvation through sanctification by the spirit and belief of the truth, to which he called you by our gospel for obtaining of the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, he talks to them about the way that they are saved. And, and, and in, uh, in theology, this is called soteriology. That's the study of salvation. And boy, there's a There's a lot of of, uh, disagreement in the area of soteriology. And this verse is used by by everyone in it. There's this tension. Did God choose you to be saved or did you believe in him and become saved? And there are those that believe that God chooses and that that you don't have a choice. There are those who believe that that there are some here today and you were chosen by God and you will be saved no matter what. We've just been chosen by him. It's, it's called irresistible grace in Reformed theology. When I say Reformed theology, by the way, we are Reformed. We have been Reformed. We are Reformed. So there's just a few things about Reformed theology that I don't agree with, that I find that a lot of Christians have problems with. Two of those things are irresistible grace and limited atonement. Irresistible grace is the idea that there's some that are chosen, that can't be lost, God just randomly chooses people. And those who believe in irresistible grace don't necessarily like the fact that I would use the word random. They would choose to use something else. But I think it comes down to that. They just believe that God, not using any of his foreknowledge, not using any of his ability as God, just said, I choose you for heaven and you for hell. And just chose people. And I'm going to use the word again. To me, it seems random is what they're saying. I don't believe that God did that. I believe in what is called provisionism that God made salvation available for everyone and then God draws men to himself so we are always responding to God's Word. Salvation is never our idea. We don't go, I think I want to get saved. We are responding to God drawing when we decide that we want to commit our lives to Christ. But I I think that the tension is here on purpose, the tension in the Bible between God's sovereignty, God choosing you before the foundations of the world, and you believing God through his foreknowledge knowing and that that tension is there and will always be there. But with that in mind, whether or not God has given you an opportunity to get saved or whether God made you get saved, listen to what Paul says again in verse 13. He says, after telling them that he always gives thanks for them, he says, brother and beloved by the Lord, because God from the beginning chose you for salvation. In Ephesians, it says that God chose you before the foundations of the world. In Romans chapter nine, we're told that he loved Jacob, but hated Esau. And when you go to the Old Testament passage, because he's quoting the Old Testament in, in Romans nine, he's talking about the nation of Israel and the nation of the Edomites, which were the descendants of Esau. He's talking about choosing Israel. And because he's talking about a group of people there, I don't believe that Romans 9 ever talks about individuals. I don't think that God, because the question that Paul asks is, who are you to speak against God? If God chooses one to be saved and one, to, one to, as a vessel of honor and one as a vessel of dishonor. But the vessel of honor are those who believe. The vessel of dishonor are those who don't believe. It's talking about a group of people that got saved, not God choosing one person to be lost or saved. And who are you to speak against God if God decided that he wanted to give salvation to anyone who would believe in his name? Who are you to say God can't do that? And I always like to say this, and this is so profound, okay? Romans chapter 9 is followed by Romans chapter 10. Now, the reason that that can be profound is because Romans chapter 10 says, if you believe, you will be saved. Paul, I don't think, would be saying something radically different in the beginning and not clarify that. If he was saying that, he would have certainly have had to clarify it by the time that he gets into Romans chapter 10. Here's what I believe. I believe that salvation is like a marriage. You both have to decide to get married. If one of you goes, nope, then that's it. You're not going to get married. You get to choose your wife and your wife gets to choose her husband and you guys both chose each other. God gets to choose those who are his and you get to choose whether or not you're going to follow God. Some say, well, then it's possible that God could choose, that God could call, that God could choose and some would not get saved. And I think that's the case. And they say, well, that fights against God's sovereignty. I don't believe that. I I, I just don't see that 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 tension that's there with the sovereignty. God is so sovereign that God, and I believe in the sovereignty of God completely. God can do whatever God wants to do. And God chose to create man so that they could rebel and walk away. God chose to draw us that we could could receive him and believe in him. And that was God's plan. If God got everything he wants because they say, well, God wants people to perish. He wants, to, he chose people as vessels of dishonor. He wants them to perish. If God got everything that he wants, then why does the Bible say that God desires all to be saved and all to come to the knowledge of the truth? If that's God's will, then, then God has given over up his will so you and I could have free will. So we could choose whether or not to love God. And, and, and I'm glad of that, by the way. Because I wouldn't want to be a robot. I have to love God. I don't really have a choice and I don't think God wants us to be robots either. And so he also, though, has the other side of it here as you read it. He says, because um, God from the beginning chose you for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. He chose you for salvation by the Spirit of God and belief in the truth. And this passage goes hand in hand. God's part in choosing, our part in believing, resulting in salvation. If you do believe and you've committed your life to Christ, you can be confident that you are saved. Verse 14 says, to which he called you by our gospel. The salvation has come through the gospel of Jesus Christ and always does. The gospel is the power of God to salvation. It's one of the reasons that we give a gospel presentation every single service. I should say virtually every single service because every once in a while we'll miss. But we give a gospel presentation every service because the gospel changes people's lives. When they hear it, they respond. There's something to it. And he says, um, he called you by our gospel for the obtaining of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. That is when we give our lives to Christ and we, we believe it is to the glory of what Jesus did for us upon the cross. So we know we can't save ourselves. We're talking about soteriology, right? The, the doctrine of salvation. We know we can't save ourselves. I I can't jump high enough to be saved. I can't do enough good works. I can't do any good work to be saved. I know it's completely and totally an act of God. It, it It is none on my part. I can't do anything to be saved. But God has offered me salvation. And when we receive it and we believe in him, when we turn and begin to live for him, then we are saved and our lives are transformed. Now, again, these are the earliest letters written in the New Testament. And Paul gets into a, a heavy section on soteriology. He talks about believing. He talks about choosing. He talks about these things that are there. I love that they're there early on. That it isn't something that we find in the later writings of Paul, but we don't find in the earliest. We find it in the earliest. It's like when people tell me that the second coming of Jesus, the rapture of the church, are, 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 were made up over time. It's like, then why do we find them in the first books written in the New Testament? He goes on to say in verse uh, 15, therefore, brethren, stand fast and hold the traditions which you were taught, whether by word or epistle. Now, Paul is an apostle. He defended his apostleship. God chose the apostles to be the foundation of the church and apostles wrote the word of God. Paul often in his letters defended it. And so when Paul gives them traditions, He's giving them to them as an apostle so they hold the authority of the word of God, whether it's by word or by epistle. It is his, uh, we're studying one of his epistles now. We, we believe the epistles are scripture. In fact, Peter says of Paul's writings, there are some that twist them, twist the scriptures because they are hard to understand. And we get that with Paul. The way Paul writes things, sometimes Paul just writes in, in, in run-on sentences. Just goes on and on. And you can forget, there's so many little, like, secondary issues that he starts to break off on. But he always comes back to his first one. And a lot of times, you forgot it. You're reading it, you're like, unless you go back and go, what did he start talking about? So I can see where he ended his thought. And you see he did it, but he just talked about a lot, a lot of little, quote, you know, um, parentheses in between. The traditions, um, the Catholic Church, the Eastern Orthodox Church, others, Believe that there are traditions that have value for making doctrine instead of the Word of God. And, and this is one of the reasons that we have differences with the Catholic Church. And I shared with you a little bit last week that if you it doesn't really do any good to argue with someone that has a different value for what makes scripture or for what makes something right or wrong. You and I, I said it earlier, part of the Reformation. We are reformed. We believe in sola scriptura. So it's scripture alone. That's it. There are other Christians. They believe in the virgin birth. They believe in the resurrection. They believe in receiving Jesus for their sa- as their Savior. But they don't believe in sola scriptura. I think it's a dangerous place to be. But when I'm talking to them, I don't, I don't want to argue with them about certain doctrines. Because what good does it do if I say it's not in the Bible? And they go, yeah, but we have tradition. I, and I start arguing with them about it. If you, I, To me, if I'm going to talk to them, I want to talk to them about whether or not the Bible has authority over um, tradition. And if traditions that are given were really meant to be Scripture, and whether the church ever had the right to make Scripture instead of the apostles, the foundation of the church, having the right to make Scripture. And I can tell you as evangelicals that we don't believe that. Catholics do believe it. And that provides for one of the major differences of why you can have people asking mary to pray for him having the saints pray for them believing in purgatory all of these have some of their foundations in the apocrypha which again there's seven books that are in the catholic bible that we don't agree with but not most of it most of it is just tradition that's been handed down so what is paul saying to us how does this apply to us stand fast and hold the traditions which you were taught whether by word or epistle It's that we are are holding on to the traditions given to us in the Word of God, that we hang on to those things. In verse 16, he says, Now may the Lord Jesus Christ himself and our our God and Father, who has loved us and given us everlasting consolation, which is comfort, and good hope by grace, comfort your hearts and establish you in every good word and work. All three chapters of 2 Thessalonians end with a prayer. So this is the second chapter that we just ended, and it ends with a prayer. They have lacked comfort because they thought they were in the tribulation period. And Paul tells them there's got to be a departure first, a falling away, and, then, and the Antichrist will be revealed. So if they were in the tribulation period, the Antichrist would be there, and there would have been a departure beforehand, so they knew they didn't miss it. Now Paul says, I just want to comfort you. He wants them to be comforted, to have consolation, that they are Okay. Again, he wasn't there with them too long. I don't think that we could fall into this same, the same problem that they fell in unless we become, you know, someone becomes a Christian and doesn't really get plugged into a church where they can learn and grow the things that the Bible teaches. I also love the fact that in verse 17, he talks about comfort again, and that God may establish you in every good word and work. God is the God who establishes. And if you have not been established in Christ, may Christ establish you. May you really work to make sure you're established. When you are established in Christ, you can't soon be shaken away. You can't soon be uprooted because you're established in him. He then says in in chapter 3, verse 1, Finally, brethren, pray for us. Paul wants prayer from them. He, in several places, Paul asks the churches that he's writing to to pray for him. Had a lot going on, and he obviously believed that prayer changed things. The Bible says you don't have because you don't ask and you don't have when you ask because you ask amiss, wanting to spend them on your own pleasure. But God does want us to pray and does want our prayers to be effective. And I believe that when we pray for the gospel of Jesus, when we pray for people getting saved, these are things God wants to do and it should be part of what we are doing as a a church. That we would pray for one another and that we'd pray for the gospel. Listen to what he wants prayer for. He says that the word of the Lord may run swiftly and be glorified because he knows that churches are established by the word of God, that people are established in Christ by the word of God. He understands that. Today, there is church planting philosophies that people want to have to plant churches. And I think that all of that becomes a problem eventually I think that you may have a good idea, you may have a good philosophy for planting churches, you may have a, this is the way that we do it. I think the best way to plant a church is I feel called by God to go and lead it, to to plant a church, and then you go and and begin to teach the word of God and to teach the gospel of Jesus Christ. I think that's the best way to plant it. Not necessarily have all these philosophies about what's going on in the world today and how it can work and how we can plant, um, plant churches. When he prayed, he didn't say, pray that we have really good insight into our community and the statistics of the community that we're in to be able to effectively plant a church there. He just said, pray that the word of God may run swiftly and be glorified. That's what we should pray as well. That we would run swiftly and be glorified. Not that God would raise up leaders that were that had better uh, vision and um, a better ability to be able to put vision and, and ideas into play so the churches could be really successful. I, I have a fear that when that happens, something's being built by men rather than being built by God. Instead of saying, Lord, I want to do what you want me to do. I want to I I preach the gospel. It's the same for all of us. It goes on to say here, then in verse 2, and that we may be delivered from unreasonable and wicked men, for not all have faith. So he also prays for deliverance. Paul is writing them from Corinth. Paul has problems there. He has more problems in Ephesus, but he has problems in Corinth as well. So much so that while he's in Corinth, the Lord stands by him and tells him, tells him, stay here a while. No one will hurt you while you're here. This is the the end of St. Paul's second missionary journey. He had already been flogged, which when you were flogged in those days, they would lay you down, stretch out your hands and your feet, take a pole, and, and after stretching you out, beat you with the pole publicly. It was embarrassing being beaten publicly, but even more than that, it was a brutal beating that happened. Paul had been beaten several times. Paul had been scourged. Paul had been stoned. Paul had had lots of difficulties. And when Paul's in Corinth, Paul's thinking, I'm out of here. Things are starting to get a little haywire. And, and, hey, Paul knew that he had to suffer many things for the Lord. And, and I heard someone say one time that Paul never, uh, they're trying to make the point that we should never demand our rights. And they said Paul never demanded his rights as a Roman citizen. Paul was from Tarsus, a Roman city, and he was a Roman citizen. But that's not true. When Paul was getting ready to be beaten again, he was arrested in Jerusalem the end of his third missionary journey. He's in Jerusalem. They arrest him. They want to know what's going on. And and so they get ready to beat him. And Paul goes, you're going to beat a Roman citizen? And the soldier goes, I didn't know you were a Roman citizen. And so then he didn't beat him because of that. So Paul wasn't into beatings just for beatings' sake. Paul wasn't like, I want to suffer for Christ. Go ahead and beat me anytime that you want to. Paul did not want that. And um, so Paul says... Pray for us because they're unreasonable and wicked men. For not all have faith. And um, maybe when you're having trouble with someone who is who's coming after you as a Christian, m- maybe it's good to ask for prayer. That's what Paul does. Ask that God would intervene. We are supposed to rejoice when people persecute us. Paul could have said, "Pray to me. Pray for me that I would rejoice when these unreasonable men come after me." But he doesn't. He says, "Pray that we may be delivered." So there's a place to go, deliver me, God, from these people who are attacking me. In verse 3, he says, But the Lord is faithful, who will establish you and guard you from the evil one. This is a great promise. It's another promise that we ought to add to another list of promises in the Bible that tell us that the evil one cannot touch us, that the devil trembles at the name of Jesus, that we've been given power over serpents and scorpions, over all the power of the enemy, that nothing will by any means harm us. We have great authority in Christ. It doesn't mean that the enemy doesn't attack us. It doesn't mean that he's trying to trip us up because he is. But it means that if we stand fast in the Lord, that the evil one cannot touch us. Again, look at verse 3. But the Lord is faithful who will establish you and guard you from the evil one. God's faithful to do that. Now I'm really glad that the Bible gives us. And that was that's just a handful of the passages that the Bible gives us on our authority over demonic spirits. But I'm really glad they're there. And there are still um, deliverance movements that believe that the main problem in Christians lives is that they are being harassed by a demonic spirit. I'm certainly not going to say it never happens. The Bible says don't give place to the enemy, and I think sometimes Christians can give place to the enemy in their lives, but but it's, it's rare, and the reason that I say it's rare is because we're never told in the Bible to deliver people that are struggling with certain sins from demons, and in deliverance ministries they do it a lot, because I think there's just something appealing to the fact it's not really, I knew it wasn't me, it's a demon, He's been harassing me. I thought it was me all along, but it was, was harassing me. No, it's you. I'm not saying that a demon's not, not involved in maybe tempting you or, or, or somehow attacking you, but God's got a protection that is around you, and that's important for us to understand. And a lot of times my problems with deliverance movements is it's an overemphasis on the demonic realm, for sure, that we don't find in the Bible. I think that we ought to have you know, I think that things are, are balanced. But the idea that your deliverance comes when someone prays for you in, instead of what the Bible tells us about our victory over, over demonic spirits. Knowing that they're very real, uh, but we have been protected by God and that God protects us from the evil one. In verse four, he says, and we have confidence in the Lord concerning you, both that you do and will do the things we commanded you. Now here, Paul plays a bit of the heavy. Paul often would write, he did this in um, Philemon, when he has a runaway slave, he's returning to Onesimus, or Onesimus is the runaway slave, running back to Philemon. And Paul says to Philemon, I could order you, but, uh, but I won't. And he kind of encourages him to take him back as a slave and give him his freedom and send him back to Paul And Paul says, I could order you, but um, I won't, but you do owe me, which is just kind of a crack up. It's like, I'm not going to make you do this, but I want to remind you, you owe me. And I don't know exactly what Philemon owed Paul, other than maybe salvation, but Paul was like, he was willing to go for the freedom of this slave, a runaway slave, found by Paul, got saved, sent him back to Philemon, and we assume is sent back once again. But Paul here says that I'm confident that you guys are going to listen up. He says, both you and uh, to do the will of these things that have been commanded you. Um, Verse 5. Now, may the Lord direct your hearts into the love of God and into the patience of Christ. We might have the love of God in our lives and the patience of Christ. By faith and patience, we inherit the promises of God. There's nothing that happens quickly. God makes us wait on purpose. Those that wait on the Lord will renew their strength, They will mount upon the wings of eagles. They will run and not be weary. And that's what God desires from us. And so he puts them into the hands of God. But now he comes to this warning against uh, idleness. This is the majority of the chapter. He's kind of just dealing with some things with them and their, their Christian conduct. But there are obviously some that are in Thessalonica who are idle. And these people have been a problem. They're probably the ones who are bringing up the false doctrine. We'll get that as this unfolds. It says in verse six, but we we command you, brethren, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that you withdraw from every brother who walks disorderly and not according to the tradition which he received from us. So now he says if there's somebody who's walking disorderly, here's the problem that we have in applying this to us today. We don't know what he means by disorderly. I think we can identify someone that's really disorderly. If there's a person and they're problematic and they're disorderly and they're just causing so many problems within the church, I think that's easy to identify. In fact, in another epistle, it says, warn those who are divisive once and twice and then remove them from the church. So there is time to take a divisive person and say, I'm sorry, you cannot come here anymore. You're here for divisiveness and the body of Christ is not to be divisive. We have differences, but we're to love one another in those differences. Unity becomes very powerful when there are differences. If we're exactly the same, we're already unified. There's no need to talk about unity. But if there are differences, then we are encouraged to be unified. I love the fact that people will come to the church that may believe something different, even something we talk about a lot. Like lately, over the last, say, three or four months, we've talked a lot about the rapture of the church. And I've talked to a couple of people who are like, I believe in post-tribulation. Every time you talk about it, I can't believe it. But they're here and I love it because that's a secondary issue. It's not a main issue. There's the love of Christ that is there. And anybody can have unity when they agree 100% with someone. But when you don't agree and you have unity, that tells you something of the love of Christ that is there. So we are not quite sure what this disorderly individual is, but we do know that we're told um, if someone's walking disorderly, that, um, well, let's go back to verse 6. Uh, but we commend you, brethren, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that you withdraw from every brother who walks disorderly and not according to the tradition he received from us. False teachers in 2 John are you're told the same thing. Don't invite them into your house. Don't sit down and have a meal with them. False teachers. I, he's not telling us to do that here to these brethren who are disorderly. He's just saying, distance yourself from them. This isn't a shunning. The Jehovah Witness says, if you, if you begin to question certain things, if you speak against leadership, if you say, I'm not a Jehovah's Witness, you will be shunned. They will not eat with you. They will not have a meal. They will shun you. This is not shunning. In fact, I don't believe that shunning in that way is ever taught in the pages of Scripture. Because if someone is disorderly, we want to reach them for Christ as well. We would love them to be able to pull it together. And I can tell you over the years that we've had individuals in the church that have caused problems and we've been able to work with them and been able to see them get past that and plug into the body and be very productive. Other times, not so much. But we've been able to see it. So we still want to, we're going to see in a moment where we're supposed to treat them as brethren still. He says in verse 7, For you yourselves know how you ought to follow us for we were not disorderly among you." Paul says, when we showed up with you guys, we didn't treat anybody that way. Hey, it's it's not love. If there's someone just to cause problems, that's not love, it's not walking in love, nor did we eat anyone's bread free of charge. Now, I think we're learning something else about these individuals that are disorderly. They're not working. Paul's got a problem with that. Everywhere Paul went when he established churches, he made tents, he was a tent maker, he made tents because he didn't want to put a burden on these church, these people. He was going to start a church there with him, and he didn't want to lay a burden on them. Later on, he would talk about churches having an obligation for those who are caring for them spiritually, financially. That wasn't the issue. Paul felt like, I'm going into a, this place, I'm preaching the gospel, and I don't want to be a burden on them. Obviously, they were. He's talking about some disorderly individuals who turn into what the Bible calls busybodies, and they go around causing problems. And so he says, uh, verse 7 again, For you yourselves know, um, Where am I at? Is that right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, verse 8, Nor did we eat anyone's bread free of charge, but worked with labor toil, day and night, that we might not burden any of you, not because we did not have authority, but uh, to make ourselves an example of how you should follow us. So Paul gives the main reason why he came in and made tents, why he was a tent maker. Because he was like, I want to give you guys an example that this isn't what we do. We don't run around trying to get things, you know, help by the church, get financial help from the church to be able to do it, but we work and we do what we can do to make sure that these things are covered. He goes on to say in verse 10, for even when we were with you, we commanded you thus, He says, I'm not telling you anything new. I told you then. And then he says, if anyone will not work, neither shall he eat. And so I'll take it. These guys, I'm just trying to piece together here and I may miss it. We we may find out that it's something entirely different. But I believe that there were some individuals that started causing problems within the church that they weren't working, maybe because they thought the rapture was coming back soon. And so they were like, why should I work? We're in the middle of the tribulation period. And that they started to get involved in people's business when they shouldn't. The Bible tells us that we're to live quiet lives and we're to mind our own business. And sometimes we get involved in people's business when we shouldn't. And I think that is what ha- is hap- was happening. These guys caused quite a stir. He says, for we hear that there are some who walk among you in a disorderly manner not working at all, but are busybodies. So, so here we get it. There's some among them, they're not working, but they're busybodies. The thing about busybodies is they can get involved in all kinds of things that they, they should not be involved in. Now, those who are such, we command you and exhort you through the Lord Jesus Christ that they work in quietness and eat their own bread. Stop running around and getting bread from other people and eat your own bread. Now, let's talk for a moment about work so he says if you don't work you don't eat and i think for most of us who are who are healthy in our relationship with god and maybe emotionally and and psychologically healthy we want to work and even if you're retired you still want to be productive and i I, especially in the kingdom of god i love how many people after they retire get involved in ministry because they want to do something now, some have said that work was the curse for the man, right? So the woman, it was pain and childbearing. You gals can blame me for that. And for the men, it was that we are going to make a living by the sweat of our brow. But I don't think that work was the curse. I think when you go back and read it, it's, it's, it's that work was going to be made harder. That was the curse. I think God always planned for us to work. God always wanted, maybe, maybe we were going to be like gardeners we turned into farmers, right? All of a sudden it's like, I got to do hard work here when God just kind of wanted us to tend the ground and, and do things. But I, I think there's something about it. I know I would not, not want to not work. I, I find a certain satisfaction in having certain deadlines to meet and doing certain things. Not only the work of God, but I think work in general. If I, if I wasn't a pastor, I would still be working because I find some satisfaction in that. And I think that work is a good thing. The Bible says long before the fall that God created the world in six days and then he rested on the seventh. He worked in six days and rested on the seventh. And that work was a plan that God had for us uh, forever. I also believe we're living in a time, uh, I don't believe it, we're living in a time where there's the great resignation, right? 4.8 million people quit working uh, last month. 4 million the month before that. And I think a lot of these, a lot of these, I think are, and I, I tried to look the details up today because I wanted to talk about it. I thought this is a perfect opportunity to be able to talk about it. And I couldn't find details. So this is what I think, not what I know because I haven't done any research on it. You might even say, don't share it then. Well, let me, let me share what I think. <laughs> just let me share what I think. It'll be okay. Um, I think that there, there are a lot of households where they have two people working that are coming down to just one now. They're realizing through COVID, you know what? We can make it with just one, one, one person working. And just one person now is working within the home. I, I think that's a lot of what is happening. But God's desire is that we would work. We also come into the role of, of women and complementaryism, complementary complementaryism compared to egalitarian. Complementarianism compared to egalitarianism. Okay? So complementary is though when you believe that the Bible has a man and a woman playing a complementary role with one another, but they are unique roles. And um, the other one is equality, that there's an equality between the two and they're both exactly the same. And I believe, I, I do believe in complementaritarian. I should practice saying that word before I actually teach on it. I believe that we, we complement one another and that we have unique roles and it doesn't have anything to do about one person having more, um, the man or a woman having more value. It has to do with the roles that God has played. And it goes all the way back to the whole work thing. And a woman who is working at home. It's not that they're not working, but a woman who's working at home. And I'm not saying that has to be done. All right, I believe that women can make their decision about if they want to work or if they don't want to work. I'm just saying, as Paul brings this up here, he's like, if you don't work, you don't eat and eat your own bread in quietness. And then let's move on. Verse 14, that's what I think. Verse 14, but as for you, brethren, do not grow weary in doing good. And if anyone does not obey our word in this epistle, note that person and do not keep company with him, that he may be ashamed. Yet do not count him as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother so here we again we get the idea that there's people that are just stirring things up and causing problems and if if paul was there he would be able to deal with it but because he's not there he's trying to give them instruction on how they deal with it first he says don't grow weary in doing good in galatians it says don't grow weary in doing good because you might quit right before you receive it because if you continue to do it you're going to receive from the good that you started if anyone does not obey the words of this epistle, note that person and do not keep company with them. Again, this is not as a non-believer. This is, not sh- this is not shunning them. It's just someone that still is causing problems. And for you to go, you know what? I don't need this. I don't need to hear it. It would be better if we, don't, if we didn't hang out. That's the idea. It's not shunning them or kicking them out of the church. Paul could have used those kind of statements, but he didn't. He's just talking about troublemakers that are causing problems, and how you deal with them and so he says um, note that person and do not keep company with them that they may be ashamed so when, when someone says you know I'm just I'm just not gonna right now I'm not gonna hang out with you because this whole thing you keep bringing up is just bad he goes on to say um, yet do not count him as an enemy but admonish him as a brother so that tells you the way that Paul still thinks that this troublemaker is a Christian He doesn't think they're just planted there by the church causing problems but that they are genuinely a Christian. Then he gets into his benediction and this is the prayer portion for the third chapter. Every chapter in Second Thessalonians has a prayer. Now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace always in every way. The Lord be with you all. He's talking about conflict. There's been conflict. Paul hasn't been there to handle the conflict. But he's like, may God give you peace. May these people that are causing strife and difficulty among you. Which, by the way, I think will, will always happen. I think it's always going to happen within the church. You get within groups. We're supposed to be in koinonia and fellowshipping with one another. Some of those kind of things are always going to happen. And we should pray for peace in all of them. He says, the Lord be with you all. Then he says, the salutation of Paul with my own hand. So as he got to the end of the letter, he's dictating it. So now we learn that even fairly early on in Paul's ministry, this is about 20 years after the time of Christ, Paul has been ministering for somewhere around 10 years. There's 10 missing years for Paul. We'll talk about that sometime when we're in the book of Acts. But Paul now says, he signs every letter. In another place, he says, do you see what great giant letters I write? This is my signature. So he wants them to know. Because earlier he had said, if you get even a, a letter from us saying contrary, it's not from us. He wants to just identify them. This is my signature. This is the way you know a letter's from me because there was probably a letter circulating to the Thessalonians that they were in the tribulation period. The salutation of Paul with my own hand, which is, uh, which is a sign of every epistle, so I write, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. And he ends with the, the Roman salutation of grace. Remember we talked about when the letter opened that he used shalom, peace, and grace. The, the, the Greek world used grace the same way that the Jews used Shalom, but theirs was the, the, the grace of the gods, Or Paul obviously used it as the grace of God. The grace and the peace of God be with you all. Amen. Now, um, as we take a look at this chapter, a couple of things really stand out for me in conclusion. I think, number one, that Paul prayed that the, swift, that the gospel would run swift everywhere that he went. When we pray for people who are in ministry, we ought to pray for effectiveness in ministry that the gospel would run swiftly, that people would get saved. I believe we're, we're asking that something that God wants for us to ask for and to not be surprised when there is conflict within the church and that it gives us an opportunity to walk like Christ, to love, to interact, to encourage one another and to solve a problem instead of um, just cutting and, cut and bait. I'm out, you know, I'm out of here but to know that there are going to be conflicts periodically within the church and there are things that need to be dealt with. Stand with me, would you, and let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for your word here, the richness that we find um, in this entire section of Scripture. And it's interesting to us, the things that we see Paul talking about so early on, the first letter that we have of him writing, and, um, and he's talking about these things so early on, We pray that we would walk in love with one another, encourage one another. Thank you for our fellowship of brothers and sisters in Christ. What an absolute privilege for us to be able to minister alongside of one another. And we pray that the gospel would indeed run swiftly. We thank you for this. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.